Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to Sensensa.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. Dr. Alexandra Solomon is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwest University and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at the same university. In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family, she's also the author of the book Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want. Her second book about sexual self-awareness, which is what we'll be discussing on today's podcast, is called Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationship You Want. It was published in February 2020, so go check it out. This podcast is made by Sensensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to Sensensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. And let's jump over to Alexandra Solomon. First, I want to welcome Dr. Alexandra Solomon to the podcast today. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's nice to be with you. Oh, my pleasure. I think what I really want to start with today is talk a bit about your new book, Taking Sex Back. Um, and I'm in the middle of reading this myself, and it's a fascinating really fascinating and beautiful read and I like the way you put things across would you be able to maybe highlight um, yeah one or two of, of the key points that you think are most important in that book and maybe we can take the discussion from there sure yeah I mean this this book was really born out of my you know two decades at this point of experience as a couples therapist and as a relationship educator um, to both you know undergraduate students and and graduate students who are training to become therapists themselves. And the ways in which I um, I have found in my own work and with my own clients and students that um, for as little as we learn about love and romantic relationships, I think we're even, even less prepared um, to engage with our sexuality in really healthy ways. And so I was, um, I was really called to write this book. Um, it's specifically um, written with a female identified you know, reader in mind because gender and sex are just so bound up that I couldn't figure out how to do, do justice to the experiences of being socialized as a man and socialized as a woman in the same book. But certainly I hope that readers of all genders will find find helpful lessons in there. And basically it's a it's a book about sexual self-awareness, this idea that we are so much better positioned to love, to make love with somebody else uh, when we are grounded in ourselves and understanding all of what we bring to the table. And so that idea that sex is so much more than a behavior, it is a gateway to some of the most powerful, evocative questions of what it means to be human. And that great sex starts with our own kind of reckoning with like, okay, so what did I learn about sex? Where did I learn it from? Was it full of fear? Was it full of just sort of, you know, organic normalizing that sex is part of life? And how does all of that come with me into the bedroom? Yeah, beautiful. And actually, I I, I think we can even, I don't know if you agree, say that to some extent, 
sex is a language in its own, a bit like we have a verbal language in the way that it's a way we can communicate with our partner parts of ourselves, And within that, we are able to experience this incredible intimacy because also we're able to see and be seen in a way that is so vulnerable that we normally don't want to expose to most people. Um, and I would even say, and this is something I found myself from personal experience a, a couple of years ago, that there's even a therapeutic healing that can happen sexually when we allow that free expression within a consensual environment with two adults, where by seeing each other in that way and accepting it, we can heal parts of the past that might have been painful. Um, and I really yeah. love actually that you take the female approach because... And I think it's so useful, your book as well, for a man, and I'm obviously a man who's been reading it, because it gives an insight into the experience of a woman that I think is just not accessible anywhere else for a man, because the education we get is just so poor. And that's the thing that many men obviously are getting told now that you know, we are not pleasing women. And yet the truth is, we also I think we need to be empathetic both towards women and men, that men simply haven't been given good information, which is why I was so happy when I saw you written this book, um, mm -hmm. because I think it's about not blaming each other, but giving each other a gentle and, and research-based insight into how the other gender actually operate. Um, and it yes. kind of brings me on to the next question as well, because I guess, yeah, one of the things that are so hard about sexuality is, I guess, both becoming aware of what we actually want and also how to express that to our partner, right? Would you be able to mm -hmm. talk a bit about, first of all, why we have these challenges and maybe secondly, after that, what we can potentially do to, to help with these challenges? Yes, absolutely. You know, something that you were just saying uh, was reminding me, you know, you were talking about how important it is for men to understand the experience of women. And I think that is true. I think, you know, just that experience of others who are different from us is just essential for, you know, the healing of the healing of humanity in general. But I had a, a, a man on my research team and he, you know, took it upon himself to kind of gather together a crew of his men. These are all 21, 22, 23-year-old guys. And he got them all together. And he was like, okay, so if you were to read a book about women and sexuality, like what would you want to read? And the thing that he really took away from that conversation was the men sort of sharing, talking among themselves about how dangerous and shameful it felt to them that they had questions at all. Like they couldn't even it was, it was difficult to imagine what the questions would be because it just felt so hard to say out loud, like, I have questions. There's things I don't understand because, as we know, part of what we do when we socialize our boys and our men is we teach them that confusion is shameful, not knowing is shameful. And sadly, um, we have a really easy way right now of of answering our questions, we can Google questions about sex, right? But the sad thing is we don't get taken to really beautiful, wholehearted websites about sex education. We get taken to Pornhub, right? And so if, if men, young men especially, are learning about sex, and especially if they are young men who are planning to make love to women, if they are learning about sex through pornography, they're not going to be learning, unfortunately, um, you know, really beautiful, like wholehearted, respectful, co-creative ways of, of being sexual with a woman. So that was one of my big takeaways is just um, being aware of ways in which we silence men's confusion and questions, which are oftentimes coming from such a beautiful place, right? Wanting to understand 
how to bring pleasure to a female partner is a beautiful, beautiful question. And one that can, in fact, only be answered by the woman he wants to bring pleasure to, right? Because if you've made love to one woman, you've made love to exactly one woman, right? Whatever you've learned probably won't translate. And it's best to um, to just create, you know, from the ground up a really beautiful sexual experience. Oh, I love that. I just want one quick point and then we can get back yes, to the question because it was please. important what you said. And I think this is something I can resonate with. And you're right, as men, we we grow up learning that we're supposed to know which shuts down communication so much. And both for women then feeling restricted because they don't want to hurt the male ego and men feeling restricted because they feel that they shouldn't need to ask. And I can just say also as a man, and I have studied female sexuality a lot now, I still have tons of questions and always we should remind ourselves that every woman is also different and have their own unique response, meaning there's no way that you can know, even if you studied every literature in the world, have practiced and practiced, then the fact is every woman has different responses. That means you have to tune into her and understand her. Mm-hmm. And that through that, I think we can accept that actually, and this is what I did again a few years ago, I said, I'm not supposed to know. So actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, asking questions is the only natural response and asking for feedback and being curious and then... Uh, What's important too, I feel, is when, you know, your woman then does open up is then to really be sure that you can be acceptant. And I think that's easier once we don't have our ego involved. Then it becomes much easier to hear the woman's feedback and not be hurt and instead just accept it and say thank you and see it as a collaborative process of creating good sex because that's what it is, right? We call it relationship, meaning we're supposed to relate. And we do that through having a collaborative. So neither of us are supposed to know. We're supposed to figure this out together. That's right. That's right. And then the questions are not frightening or embarrassing. The questions are beautiful because the question is like, I want to know you that much more deeply. Like, can you peel back one more layer of what it is to be you and show me one more layer? And that's, that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to shed that expectation um, that we have to know and to instead just invite curiosity. Cause that's what intimacy, I mean, really, honestly, when you boil it down, that's all intimacy is anyways, right? Intimacy is just curiosity, just like witnessing somebody else and, and, um, kind of holding that space, right? Just like kind of quieting down our own stories to, to bear witness to, or be curious about somebody else's stories. And similar to you, I've had, right. I've had the same partner, my husband, Todd, for decades. And it's just, that's been one of the really fascinating and beautiful things this book has opened up is like new conversations and new questions that we are asking ourselves and each other. Because frankly, if you've been making love to the same person for years, even though they're the same two people, everything changes, right? The context changes, you become parents, you you know, the kids grow up or, you know, and, and we age and our bodies change. And so whatever you think you figured out about your sexuality and your partner sexuality um, can get and should get and needs to get sort of figured out again and again because the context keeps changing and each of each partner keeps changing. So it, it in that way, you know, monogamy doesn't have to be something that is monotonous, right? It can be um, something where there is like a continued discovery if we allow it. And I think the thing, you know, to get back to your question about what blocks communication, I think it is that idea that starts when we're very young, right? We are, for many of us, I think for most of us, our initial pairing is of sex is that sex is somehow shameful. It's dirty. It's shameful. And 
I think our parents, you know, the people who raise us oftentimes come by that honestly, because that's what they were taught. So it's like, you can just look up the family tree at that messaging that just gets passed down and passed down and passed down that sex is dirty, taboo, shameful, and therefore can't be spoken. And if there's silence about the topic of sex, well, if there's, if there are shameful messages and it's obvious that, you know, we internalize shame, but if there's silence, I think what we are at risk of doing is we fill in silence with shame, like things that nobody else is talking about. It feels then embarrassing or shameful to imagine asking about it. So I think that's, we, we come by our challenges and research has shown that couples who can talk about sex have better sex, but that it's awfully, awfully common for couples to struggle. I saw a study where they were looking at um, heterosexual relationships that were over a decade old. And in those relationships, 60% of people, um, sorry, partners could only could only share, they could only accurately name about 60% of what their partners liked in bed, right? So there wasn't a ton of agreement within each pair, um, within each couple in this study, there wasn't a ton of agreement when they were asked, like, what does your partner like? And then they asked the partner, what do you like? There wasn't a ton of agreement there, even though these were longstanding couples. And I think it highlighted that, um, that, we struggle with communicating about sex and we struggle for very, very good and understandable reasons. Yeah. And also I think what's beautiful is to see it as a process. And you mentioned this of exploration of continuously getting to know each other because it isn't a fixed, even if we have conversations and we get to know our partner, then, you know, those nuances even change. So, you know, I I know myself that, you know, we can be with my partner and, and maybe, one point she is in in one mood, maybe she is feeling in a naughty mood. Another point she is in a more gentle, tender, loving mood, and it changes and mm-hmm. it's organic. And it's a and only if we are present rather than being. And I think as men again, we want models, we want systems. You know, we love these advertising lines, a free step model. You know, to great <laughs> sex, <laughs> they sell fantastic <laughs> because men like sure. to know that there's a fixed model, but there isn't. And that's the truth. Mm-hmm. There isn't a fixed model. Even when you do get to know your partner, then we still have to tune in and be present and be able to pick up the signals that we get in that moment. So I would say curiosity is also in the moment itself, right? Being curious about what is the feedback I'm getting here because it's constant, right? Mm, it's such an important point because I think that is for women, sometimes it can feel embarrassing. Like last time my partner gave me oral sex, I had an orgasm really easily, but this time my partner's giving me oral sex and I'm not having an orgasm easily. And I think if I think it's so easy to attach to that phenomenon, a story that sounds like this, something must be wrong with me. What's wrong with me? That what worked last time didn't work this time. And so if that becomes um, a woman's story or a man's story, if that becomes the story, then the person's going to shut down and just and just be like, I can't, we can't talk about this. We can't look at this. It's embarrassing. And then that's where that distance happens between partners versus just kind of meeting it with curiosity. Like, isn't that fascinating that last time this felt really good and this time it doesn't feel so good. Let's try something else. Um, but that's what happens so easily is that we we can fill in that space with a story that something is wrong with me. And as soon as that story comes in, like, what's wrong with me? Why isn't this working? Or um, my partner must feel badly because it worked last time and it's not working now. That's how disengagement and distance starts to creep in and take over. And boy, oh boy, that can just, 
once that kind of takes hold, it is it is really downhill from there, right? Whatever we can't speak about with our partners, then it just gets worse. Yeah, and I want to say out there too to any male listeners that, you know, one of the biggest lie is this idea that women want us to always think we know or, or have this idea that we always have to be confident, I think it's called, even though there's no clear definition of what that means. When the truth is, I found something very else to be true. I found that women appreciate a man that is curious about them and willing to accept them for however they show up far more than the man that shows up and pretend he knows everything. So, you know, the fact is, it's enormously valued to be a man who shows up and say, you know what, I don't know everything, but I'm really curious and I want to learn about you and I'm open to your feedback. Actually, I welcomed it. That is far more sexy than somebody showing up and pretending that he knows everything and unwilling to actually listen to the feedback coming. So I think what I want to then, um, yeah, for, in regards to the first question, also just talk a bit about how can we then, when we start tuning in and being more aware of what it is that we want, how can we then kind of communicate that to our partner? Because you're right, there obviously are these blocks in the way that some men are still stuck in this story and have a lot of ego that makes it very hard for women to communicate their needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we're I think we're highlighting so much a heterosexual dynamic because I do think that it's a dynamic that gets us, that is um, heterosexual couples do tend to struggle quite a bit in this in this realm because of, you know, because that's been the sort of like predominant sexual script is the heterosexual one. So when somebody um, is part of the LGBTQ community, by stepping out of that really rigid, narrow, highly gendered story that he needs to be in charge and she needs to just follow along, the moment somebody who is queer steps out of that, right? They, they cannot possibly bring that exact same template into the bedroom. What the research shows is that LGBTQ couples tend to have far more equality, reciprocity, gentleness, and communication in the bedroom than straight couples because just that heavy, ancient, loaded up power dynamic really gets in the way for both partners. And um, that was one of the things in my research lab that we were we kind of kept stumbling on is is women on my team realizing how much time they have spent being aware of their own behavior and their own language so as not to um, hurt a man's feelings. And it just is so, so deadly to both sexes, right? If she's worried about tiptoeing around his ego, his fragility, hurting his feelings, um, making him feel insecure, so to speak, then she can't tune into her own body. And there's no way in hell she's going to experience pleasure if she can't tune into her, her own body. If all she's doing is trying to figure out, is he, does he think I'm sexy? Is he, how is he doing? How is this going for him? There's no way she can really tune into her own body and follow her own sensations. And as you were speaking to so beautifully, if he feels like he has to be in charge, then he's not going to be able to ask questions, be curious, Um, and kind of follow her lead. So I spent a lot of time in the book sort of highlighting that because that's the first step is just knowing that that dynamic exists is the first step towards shedding it. Um, And I think that for, I think for a lot of women, this, you know, we, we, we spend time in the book sort of looking at this from all these different perspectives, but one 
perspective that is essential is sort of her own self-knowledge, like literally down to her own knowledge about her anatomy. So in the book, there are like diagrams of external female genitalia and a diagram of the clitoris and some like basic education that most of us need because, you know, in, in the field of science and the, in the quest and the search for knowledge, we don't get answers to the questions that we don't ask. And there was for a very long time, a sort of collusion around not asking questions about female sexuality, specifically questions about the clitoris, which is, you know, the centerpiece of female sexual pleasure. And interestingly, our predominant heterosexual sexual script is so centered on penetrative sex. Um, And that is the research again shows that penetrative sex tends not to be the most orgasm producing sexual behavior for those with a vulva, that um, things like manual stimulation and oral sex and things that more directly engage the tissue of the clitoris tend to feel a lot better for those with a vulva than penetrative sex. And so it's so interesting that we have built our whole kind of like sexual script around like the act, like the capital T, the sexual act is penetration when that is interestingly not maybe the one that feels best for her. Mm, and you know, I also, I also think there's a lot of this message in our culture that women should not be selfish, right? They should caretake and they should try and please the man, etc. And I think it's important to be aware that this makes it very, very difficult to get full pleasure from a sexual experience because part of t- taking pleasure is to be able to be selfish. And with that, I mean being present with self, is that we have to be able to find the balance and it's a beautiful balance that I play around with a lot with something I do call fire rhythm dancing or being present with our own body and being present with the people around us and it can be very very challenging to do both at the same time but it's also the beautiful sweet spot and I think a a lot of women because the way they've been socialized are so outward focused on the man they experience what's expected of them you know self-consciousness that they don't feel or they feel wrong like you say again shame around taking and being present and saying, you know what, now I'm just feeling pleasure. And that can also really shut down that sexual response, right, of not being able to understand that actually it's a beautiful thing to be able to also say, right now I'm going to be present with my own body and my experience and allow myself to feel. And that's why there was some um, a friend of mine, a woman who recently said to me, you know, I never have experienced orgasms, what should I do? And of course, this is a big question with lots of potential answers. But I said to her, first of all, I think you should take a little break from from having sex with your husband and trying to achieve it through doing it together with him. Because I think, first of all, you need to learn to be present with self. And when you're with your, your man, your husband, and you're constantly thinking about his experience, you know, your body image, all these different things are coming into the picture, how he's feeling, blah, blah, yep. blah. And I said, so first of all, take that out of the picture and just make some time where you touch yourself and explore touch yourself without anybody else because anybody else coming in complicate that picture and then play around with different fantasies and see what stimulate you mentally and slowly you can start figuring out what feels good and then it will also become much easier for you to communicate that to your partner once you found that place that you can be present with self but it can be very hard to find that while being with a partner 
I agree. I agree a hundred percent with everything that you just said. And even if her partner is really authentic in his desire to support her and her pleasure, there may, if there's any part of her that is like, I have to orgasm in order to help him feel better about himself. If there's any part of that, and especially if they've been kind of heading down this road many times over many years, it's just such a well-worn path at this point that I agree it has to get really broken up. Um, the whole the system has to get shaken up, and that really is kind of saying I love you, but I'm going to need you to step away for a bit and let me take the lead, let me feel my body, and that and that when as she touches and explores her body, to have it be really non-directive. That there's not really any goal. It really is just it becomes basically a meditation, right? A mindful meditation where she is just feeling what touch feels like and noticing how sensation rises, noticing what arousal feels like in her body, noticing how her touch can amplify her arousal so that it's just very gentle, very curious, not goal oriented, like a re almost a rewiring. And I love what you're saying also about the mental images, like letting her um, letting herself notice what images come to her that feel particularly erotic and arousing and that take her more deeply into her experience. It's just so beautiful. And it is a practice that she's doing ultimately in the service of her relationship, but it is a deeply, deeply selfish practice. And I think that you know, there's, there's a connection there to between women and sex and women and food. And I think for many of us, we have spent our whole lifetime trying to shut down our various appetites, our various ways in which we want to indulge and like satisfy ourselves. I think we are used to, many of us are used to um, wanting to be able to like be above sensation, right? Like not following hunger, you know, managing our appetites, managing our greediness, and in some ways, sex is beautifully healing because it just subverts that whole narrative, right? It gives us a chance to subvert it and actually like follow our greediness. Yeah, thank you. There are so many wonderful points. I really liked how you said it's about seeing it a bit like a meditation, mindfulness and being present. And also you brought up that amazing point about how we often see this goal and I think that can be such a big block to pleasure too right because the goal in itself of having to reach an orgasm um, is exactly what often shuts it down as well because having that pressure of feeling we have to you know none of us get turned on by feeling pressure we have to do something specific which again is why this self-exploration is great because then that pressure can just go away you don't have to try and you know comfort your partner's ego you don't have to reach an orgasm you just have to see what feels good and it's a beautiful self-exploration of getting to know ourselves. um yeah so i think thank you for yeah. bringing up those points and i think i wanted to discuss a little bit more about also i guess the differences in in male and female sexuality and sexual response are you able to maybe talk a little bit about that too Yes. You know, there's there's really no way of looking at this question outside of cultural conditioning and the messages that we've internalized. And so I think the place, well, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of different answers to this question, but to me, the 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 richest avenue in is to look at the messages we've been given about 
um, sex and gender. And I get quite heartbroken when I look at ways in which our culture perpetuates this idea that male sexuality is predatory and dangerous by nature. Certainly, we know that, you know, the vast majority of sexual violence is perpetrated by men, certainly, but that doesn't mean that male sexuality is inherently predatory in any way, but there are just these ways in which that message gets reinforced. Like the example I always use is these these dress code rules that schools will have, right? Where girls' skirts have to be this length or their tank top straps have to be this wide across. And woven into that dress code rule is the idea that girls have to hide their bodies because of the danger of male gaze. And that is a way of sending boys a message that actually your sexuality is so dangerous that that the world has to protect itself from the power of your sexual desire or your sexuality. Rather than teaching boys how to feel the pull of you know the bodies that they are drawn to, how to feel that and then ground it within their bodies, right? Like I notice that whatever, that shoulder, or I notice that walk and I notice that it's arousing and I ground that energy in my body and I return to my algebra problem. <laughs> like that would be such a healthier practice. So I think that is one of the one of the, I think, and I think when boys internalize that message, then as they grow up and become sexual, I think they come into sexuality with a fear of doing harm. There's a deep fear. That's what I hear from my college students that I'm able to work with and the young men I know, especially where there's just a fear of being creepy, of coming across as lecherous, of being hurtful in their desire. Like how do they express their desire, show interest, inquire, seduce, flirt, without coming across as creepy or predatory. And I think part of that answer is in, in, in raising everybody to feel really empowered to give authentic feedback, right? When we think about flirtation or seduction, it's a feedback loop. It's a sort of a give and take of, of sort of putting something out there and seeing if somebody meets it and amplifies it or just sort of, you know, rebuffs it and, and isn't, isn't kind of, interested in playing with us in that way. So um, I think that that's the biggest difference is that we teach our boys that they have to pursue and we teach our girls that they cannot pursue and that that kind of sets us off to the races. Um, I mean, obviously there are physiological differences, but a lot of it is just like the mythology. There's a lot of fascinating work right now around how men and women experience sexual monogamy. And a lot of the research is showing that actually women experience sexual boredom with monogamy far more quickly than men do, which runs counter to all of our stories that, whatever, that women are somehow less sexual than men. Um, in fact, I think that, that that is, I think women are just simply taught to be more ashamed of their sexual appetites and their sexual desires. So um, I've talked with a lot of women who feel like very early on they they had to shut down their sexual curiosity for fear of being frankly you know slut shamed or um or seen as sort of like that kind of woman the kind of woman who would be really enjoying sex really liking sex really wanting sex so a lot of the healing is that i talk with women about is 
how to reclaim like that dirty, naughty, curious, hungry part of themselves. And I don't think that men are, you know, men are given a, a set of toxic messages that are different. But I'm curious, what are, what are your what are your thoughts on that? How would you how would you build on that? I think it's a huge, interesting question. I love what you're saying. And you know, I think first of all, I I just want to say I feel it's so important that we remember that that sex is so much more than just a physical experience, right? And it also a mental, it's a cognitive, it's an emotional, it's a sensation experience. And I think it, it's so interesting the study you mentioned that women get bored quicker in monogamy. Mm-hmm. And actually it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that. And I think what we have to remember is we can only do so much variety when it comes to to physical stimulation of course we can do different things but there are still limitations but we also have this beautiful mind the most magnificent Mm. sexual organ sits between our ears and you know there's so much unlimited potential to play around with our emotional arousal too and how we can use fantasies etc to stimulate once we can understand what emotions it is that we the core emotions that we actually want to feel doing sex that makes us more turned on because I think and especially from a lot of men the questions that I would often get is you know what are some techniques they want physical techniques and there's often so much neglected around the exploration of the emotional because the truth is we have sex because we want to feel something we want to feel some emotions and even in the most casual encounters People mm-hmm. still want to feel something, whether it's to feel valued, whether it's to feel validated, whether it's to feel loved, whether it's to feel, you know, wh- whatever it is, whether it's to feel empowered, whatever it is, we want to feel something. And once we can tap into that, then there's just so much more, I find, on unlimited potential, basically, to explore that makes it much easier to to also navigate sexuality in within monogamy. Um, yeah. That's right. Yes. And I I think that that research, certainly that research does not say that therefore women are not cut out for monogamy, but it is simply just an invitation to expand. And it makes so much sense if if a woman feels like sex is a duty, right? Which is, that's, that's sort of the story under patriarchy, that that is, that sex is women's duty in a relationship with a man as part of her obligation, then of course monogamy is going to be really boring because it is simply something that one does for another versus what you're saying is, right, you could you can make love a million times to the same partner in a million different ways then if, if we're open to all of the spiritual, psychological, emotional avenues that we can head down and play with and explore i agree wholeheartedly yeah and i think i think thank you i think you also asked you know what would i i add to your excellent answer about the difference in in male and female sexuality and i think even though i don't like to say this is particular gender-based but i think you might disagree or agree but i think the majority of women lean more towards having a, a responsive um approach sexuality meaning that often they take longer to get turned on while for a lot of men it's very instant it will often a visual cue that can get them turned on and i think again if we can get away from this goal-orientated idea of having to get somewhere we can actually see this as a long beautiful process where sex is not just what happens when we get in between the sheets because i think it's a shame that we limit it to that that sexuality is something that is expressed all the time in our everyday interactions and it starts far, far before we even get to that place. And I guess that's why a lot of people also get bored because they get into their routine, they have their children, they come to work and then they go into bed and think, oh, it should magically happen. And I especially know for men, 
that's what a lot of men presume and they don't understand why is it not happening and i think having this understanding that you know and men some men are also responsive by the way so it's not purely one right. gender or the other um that would be simplifying it but just having this understanding that you know it starts way before how we express our sexuality how we start engaging that energy way before we even get there um and i think for men that's probably a good idea to start understanding and also the joy of taking our sexuality into other areas and just the physical act of the bedroom um because it's a beautiful energy that can enhance a relationship altogether yep well what you're what you're pointing to around some of the potentially gender differences i think really do reflect oftentimes roles within the home and this is you know when i talk with audiences of especially midlife you know established heterosexual couples they wouldn't have to be heterosexual really it is about that caregiving role whoever is in the driver's seat in the caregiving role tends to need a lot of support and a lot of tools for how to de-roll, how to take off the sort of mother or parent or caregiver, homemaker, domestic person role and put on a role of lover and intimate partner because those are wholly incompatible, right? We, we, um, they're very, very different kinds of roles, but that, that caregiver role for all of the beauty that there is in that there's not a ton of erotic <laughs> within that space and so i really want whoever's in that role to have some tools for how do i what what works best for me to kind of strip off those those roles i play those spaces i occupy and how to kind of shed those and claim or um that part of me that is a woman that is a lover, that is a partner? And how do I bring, what are my tools and strategies for kind of putting the caregiving in the back seat and putting the erotic in the front seat? Because that needs to be a conscious process. As you're saying, it's not like we just get into bed and all of a sudden all that, that whole day of tending and, and thinking about everybody else is just gone. And now my sexy part is in, in the front seat. No, there needs to be some conscious intention that I'm doing and that I can also ask my partner's support from. So that's, that's where the conversation is so essential is if a partner who doesn't struggle with that, who has more of a spontaneous desire, like they're just good to go, I would want them to kind of ask the question to their more responsive partner. Like, how can I advocate for us? How can I help you move out of that caregiving role and, and, and tap into your sexual self? And how can I be an advocate and a cheerleader and an ally in bringing that part forward? And it really is a we project. I love that. Thank you. And I, I like how you make it also about who is, who is the main, you can say, the, the caregiver, the one who takes care of that nurturement, because I think you're right. It is so difficult to switch from that role straight over to a sexual role. And again, there can be a beautiful teamwork here about how to do that. Um, I know, again, we have certain rituals with, with my partner that we that we then integrate where we make it possible to switch over into a different state and kind of disengaging. Um, one of them is, for example, to leave the house and going out to a different venue that already sets a new stage, etc., um, and just create a different feeling. So thank you for that. I think the next question is a big one. 
um, and a big task for us to take on. <laughs> but I want to do it anyway because it's something I'm very passionate about. Because I think one of the biggest blocks to sexual enjoyment is having bad body image. And I think very sadly we live in a culture that flourishes economically from giving women a bad body image, from making mm -hmm. women feel bad about their body. You know, we have whole industries that support this. And right. and it's really, really so sad that we economically gain from making women feel bad because when a woman don't feel good about her own body, it's very difficult to be fully present and take fully pleasure from her body. And I know that I have met this issue with every woman I ever um, have been sexual within my life so it's mm -hmm. obviously very very predominant um, and it makes me sad every time and I make it a mission of mine to try and help them get out of that nonsense um, yeah. of this feeling that we're just never good enough and you know yeah and I found no matter how a woman look whatever size she is there's always body image issues because it's ingrained so early on um, so I just maybe you can talk a bit about body image where it comes from and maybe also a bit about is there something we can do and what can we do about this? Right, right. Well, I'll tell you what we can't do or what we shouldn't do. I know that I, I spent years imagining that if I, if I could just get to point X, then this body image stuff would go away for me, whatever it was, you know, some sort of um, how my stomach would look or how many pounds I would weigh. If I just met this goal, then my body image stuff would fall away. And that I can guarantee is a road to nowhere because whenever we get to that point, either the goalpost moves and now we want another five pounds or another whatever, or we realize that that wasn't the issue anyway. So I think the thing for us not to do is kind of stay on the hamster wheel of believing that our body image problem just reflects that we haven't gotten to the finish line yet. You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the first thing is to kind of break up that idea that this is going to get better once I look the way I think I should look and to instead start that process of, which is, which is a, a challenging process and a lifetime process of just like loving the skin that we're in, loving who we are as we are. And I think some of it is, some of it is I think it is helpful to know and to hear, as, as you've done in your life, I think it's helpful for a woman to hear from her partner that her partner does not share the same story about her body that she does about her body. I think that's actually really helpful reality testing because a woman's stories, and we're going to say woman, even though I know that men also struggle with body image, a woman's stories about her body can feel inside of her like capital T truth. Like it is just the objective reality. And so to hear that her partner actually has has zero of those stories about her body, that can help. That can help let go of some of it. It doesn't, sadly, the thing we know about shame is that, you know, somebody else cannot love us out of our shame. They can, they can validate, they can say, I don't see it that way. But there's a piece of it that's always going to be about our own reckoning with ourselves. And so then it, it is about finding pathways to self-compassion. And a lot of that has to do with noticing when we're starting that chatter. If I've been critical of my body all day, beating myself up about how I didn't work out or I ate this and I shouldn't have, whatever, that chatter is going to continue into my sexual experience with my partner. So 
So noticing that chatter is essential. That's a, a huge first step is noticing that the chatter is there because the moment I realize that, that it's chatter, it puts just a little sliver of space between me and the chatter. And now I can use some tools for turning the volume down on that and refocusing my attention on sensation on the love I feel for my partner, on how sacred the space is that we're creating together. Because if my attention is there, then my attention cannot be on my body or my self-criticism. That is, in fact, the woman who wrote the foreword to, to Taking Sexy Back is a researcher um, in Canada named Dr. Lori Brado. And that was what she found in her research. She had all these women, you know, took all these women into her lab who are struggling with low sexual desire. She taught them how to do mindfulness, how to notice where their thoughts are going and how to return to the, the beauty and sacredness and pleasure of this moment. And she had awesome findings, increases in lubrication, increases in arousal, increases in orgasm. So the body image chatter is just one of the many ways that we can take ourselves out of a moment and into self-criticism. And then mindfulness uh, and self-compassion become our path back to ourselves. So that's, but it's, it is, I just want to honor how, how big it is and how, um, as you said, you know, we come by negative body image for some very, very good reasons, because, uh, as you said, whole industries are built on selling women insecurity about their bodies, about their appearance. Um, and we, I, I, it's why I support all of the sort of body positivity, um, inclusive inclusiveness around bodies, like just showing beauty in all kinds of bodies and in, in all bodies, right? The, the the fact that we live in a body is beautiful in and of itself. And that, that body, just as it is, has beauty because it is the gateway to sensation and pleasure and, and sexual healing. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And I think one thing for male listeners out there, what I found really good is to start appreciating different female shapes and body is simply to look at different images because we are bombarded with these Photoshop images mm. of models and if people watch pornography, then they get that ideal and we get these specific ideals that our brain basically learn that that is what beautiful and that's what we should get turned on by. It's important to remember this is cultural. This is something we learn. It's not that we are born to think that that is what's sexy and it can be really helpful to sit and just look at different images and learn to appreciate different female bodies and shapes, etc. Um, so you can start doing the same with your partner and also an exercise that I found personally very useful. This is not validated by science, but personally is to sit down with your partner and when like you mentioned that they hear this chatter or self-criticism or self-doubt about different parts of their body that they don't feel good about then sit with them and you even you could sit on the bed naked and this doesn't have to involve sex at all but be able to just sit in presence and look at each other naked and show appreciation for different body parts and learn to feel that appreciation can also be very very healing I, I at least found in my own experience so at least it's something that could be worth trying for the listeners mm. out there. I love that. I love that so much. It is it is deeply deeply healing. And it and as you were saying that I was thinking also about just 
humor, right? Humor and play, like just having silliness around nakedness and around bodies, because there is something so very ridiculous about our bodies, right? And to have that humor and levity is a very different way of relating to our body as um, I think so often we relate to it as like this project, this never ending project of self-improvement. And to just bring like a playfulness about whatever, this jiggly booty or, you know, there can, and that, that, that's a different perspective and anything that breaks up those old stories is is just so healing. Oh, I like that. You know what? There's so much I want to discuss with you, so I need to bring you back on another podcast. But I think one of the <laughs> one of the last questions here I just want to ask you with the little time we do have left is you talk about your book about the different spectrums of learning to tune in and responding either from love or fear, right? And I would just love if you could talk a little bit more about that and maybe also in the context of how women can can learn to sense into to their own boundaries because I found, you know, and it, it's very counterintuitive in the way we live in a society where we think it's all about the more choice, the better, the more freedom, the better, right? But I have not found that to be true. I found that actually for love to really flourish, we do need boundaries and we need to be able to express those boundaries because that's where trust can really flourish too when we can trust somebody to express their boundaries and they feel safe in their own boundaries. So, yeah, this is why I actually find that there's more freedom within boundaries. And that's why I would love for you to talk a mm -hmm. bit about this concept you had about the two different spectrums of responding from love and fear and maybe how that could apply to boundaries. Right, right. I'm, I'm going to pause you here. I got somebody knocking at my door. Hang on, but you, yeah, I no hope problem. you're going to edit. Okay, hang on one second. Hang on. Ah, I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, so we okay, got so have we got five minutes I can hear. We do, yeah. <laughs> My son needs we've got one microphone because usually I don't need a microphone and yeah. he needs it for, for class, so he's gonna need Oh there we go. Let, let's finish. So basically okay. the question was just okay. about the yes. spectrum of love, love yeah. and fear and mm -hmm. how to apply to boundaries. Um, okay, I'm ready. So this, yeah, this idea became really central in the book, this idea that there really are only two energies in the world, the energy of love and the energy of fear. And, and so that became sort of a theme throughout the book of helping, helping us tune into what's motivating me right now. Am I being motivated by love? Love, not, not necessarily like I love you love, but just the energy of love is like the energy of bounty and trust and plenty and truth and authenticity. Um, so that's a yes that really means a yes or a no that really means a no. That's like very clear and loving and like, I can't say, I can't say yes because my truth is no. And so therefore I'm going to say no versus the energy of fear. The energy of fear is this idea of scarcity or control. The idea that I'm going to say yes, because I'm scared that if I say no, you're going to walk away. Or I'm going to say no, because I'm afraid if I say yes, you're going to think differently of me. So it's just that like tuning into alignment, like what, what do, and, and it has to start like all good boundaries, all good choices start from a check-in with self. And that is such a vital step because I think about this a lot of times with women who are dating, um, where there's such a, you know, I will get questions like, at what point is it okay to have sex with a new partner? 
I'm like, uh, I have no idea when it's okay to have sex with a new partner because that question cannot be answered by anybody besides you, right? There's no yes and there's no, there's no right or wrong in that. But, but what it speaks to is this, is this fear of doing it wrong, of either of having sex too soon or holding out too long, all of which are these sort of useless constructs um, because, because a choice to expand a boundary, to say like, I'm ready for sex with you, that choice needs to be grounded in a really um, deep check-in with myself. Like, how would I know? So the more interesting question is, by what means would I know that I'm ready to have sex with a new partner? How would I be feeling on the inside? What would the relational space feel like? What would I be hearing and seeing from that person that would guide the decision, right? There's no such thing as like the third date rule or, you know, by the end of one month, you should be whatever. It, the boundary has to be something that comes from a place of, I've checked in with myself. This is my truth to the degree I can know it. And therefore, this is the choice I'm making. Yeah, I love that. And also, this is where the beauty really comes of being able to tune into our own bodies and somatically be present, I find, because... The, the question is, like you said, when, when is it right to have sex with someone? It's so true. They can only answer that themselves. But to do that, we need to be able to feel our bodily sensations, right? And I even, you know, I learned myself through some of the somatic work I did in the US when I did my training there that when something was crossing my boundaries, I would feel a tension in my stomach. That was my somatic sign. And that means straight away, if I get that, I know something is not right. I not might be able to explain why, but I can just say, wait, hold on a minute. No, I don't want to progress right now. I'm not sure why. And I feel when women can learn to tune into that, they will know where they feel, feel it in their body when something doesn't feel right. And if they can learn to trust and listen to that, then they can use that as a way to navigate you know, that question that, that you know, somebody asked you. Um, so, yeah, thank you. And I just mm -hmm. want to say, I hope I can bring you back on another podcast. As I said, I have much more I would love to discuss with you. <laughs> um, but I know we're, we're running out of time. So I just want to thank you so much for all your insight and sharing about your book. Could you just tell quickly before we finish off where people can go find your book, etc. And if they want to know more information about you, how they can get in contact with you? Sure. The The best place for more information is my website, dralexandrasolomon.com. And the book is available wherever books are sold. I think especially uh, right now, shipping can be delayed, but New Harbinger, which is the the, pub the publisher, is um, shipping books in a, in a really prompt fashion. And then social media, I'm really active on Instagram, dr.alexandra.solomon, and also on Facebook, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Perfect. And for everyone out there too, you can get the book on Kindle as I did. So that should be very quick and no shipment required. So, That's thank, right. <laughs> so thank you so much, Alexandra, for coming on the podcast. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you, Thomas. So nice to be with you. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down 
that how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast. Mm-hmm.